Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good. Lots changed since I last saw your faces. Not least of those changes, I grew a cul-de-sac ponytail. Uh, but my wife made me trim it down. That's not true, but I wanted to try jokes. You can't really tell jokes to an empty room. <laughs> I mean, one time Brett was here, but he was eating a sandwich, so that was a little, <laughs> was a little different. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk this morning about expediency. Um, we're going to view uh, a whole bunch of actions that were expedient. They were, they, were, they were the most expedient option for a whole bunch of people. And so just, just so that we're on the same page, I want to read to you what happens when you type in expediency into Google. So uh, this is the formal uh, definition of expediency. The qual- it's a noun. The quality of being convenient and practical despite possibly being improper or immoral. Okay, I'm going to read that again. Um, The quality of being convenient and practical despite possibly being improper or immoral. Now, I like that definition, but I want to kind of hone it in a little bit so that we can sort of use this to understand our passage a bit. So what does it mean to act expediently? Right? What does it mean to act expediently? Well, my sort of translation of this definition is to do anything foolish, questionable, or wrong in order to make good things happen or to prevent bad things from happening. Does it make sense? We're all on the same page? Okay. Turn to 2 Samuel 20. 2 Samuel 20. This is commonly called the Rebellion of Sheba. And it's commonly called that because that's what the subheading says. So as soon as you're there, um, start to read with me. Now there happened to be there a worthless man. All right, everybody stop. This is the first hiccup in the passage. Now there happened to be there a worthless man. Okay, so if you, I don't know where you're at in your walk with Jesus, but if, if this is uh, your first sort of journey, or if you're in the midst of your first journey as in, in, in understanding the scriptures, things like this can trip you up. We have these subheadings in our English translations of the Bible, and sometimes the subheadings are just really, really poorly placed. And this is one of those occasions. You can actually trip yourself up by reading this whole story and not really knowing what it's about because the subheading happens about a chapter and a half uh, before the actual action of the passage. So I want you to back up now to 2 Samuel chapter 19, and we're going to start at verse 8 and a half. No kidding. Verse 8 and a half. If you're in the ASV, uh, it's going to uh, begin a subheading that says, David returns to Jerusalem. Okay. 
Read with me. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? All right, so let's put this in context, all right? So if, if, if you remember, uh, last time we were in 2 Samuel, David's son Absalom uh, initiated a revolution against David. It was a trying time for David, but it was an opportunity to see how David images Christ. And, and the resolution to that revolution, uh, if that's not a confusing wording, I don't know what is, but the resolution to that, um, to that rebellion was that uh, God might, mightily worked through David and David's men, and, um, and Absalom was killed. So Absalom's army, which is literally the bulk of the army of, of Israel, is now fleeing back to their homes, and they're asking tough questions because they supported uh, this tyrant king instead of the good King David whom God had given them. And now there's this discussion unfolding. They're saying, what do we do now? Like, David has been a good king to us, but we supported Absalom instead, and now, and now Absalom's dead. So why, why wouldn't we just ask David to come be our king again, right? And so there's this unity developing among the people of Israel. But what you need to know to understand this passage is that the structure of ancient Israel is important. Um, namely, that you, you're going to see two words. Um, you're going to see Israel and you're going to see Judah. All right? Now, for the longest time, I thought these were syn- synonyms. And so I just did not understand the history of Israel. Because sometimes it would say Israel and, and they would behave in certain ways. And sometimes it would say Judah and all of a sudden there's a different thing going on. And, 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 and I didn't understand. Well, what's happening is that Israel is a united state of ten tribes. Okay? So Israel, which is the bulk of, of the northern part of ancient Israel, Israel uh, is the term used to describe that, that, that unity of ten tribes. Now Judah is a single tribe, but Judah is a powerful and politically significant tribe. And so Judah actually plays a very important role among the people of Israel, and especially politically so. We, we know this because when David first ascends to the throne as the, the, the righteous king, he does so um, among Judah, right? And even, we, we even know that Absalom recognizes Judah's importance because when Absalom is, is initiating his rebellion against, Jude, or against uh, David, he announces that rebellion from Judah. He has all of this sort of series of announcements that he's the king now start, initiate in Judah. So Judah has this pretty key significance here, and everyone knows it. David knows it, Absalom knows it, and the people of Israel also know it. Okay, so David and his men have just crushed a rebellion that had torn the nation apart. And David is now rightly concerned with reuniting his broken people. So he's on his way back into the promised land, and he's thinking, how do we fix this broken situation? Okay. Uh, Now, David receives word 
that Israel, the ten united tribes of Israel, have embraced his return. That's what we just got from this paragraph. This buzz that says, why not bring the king back, has now reached David's ears. But he has not yet heard back from Judah. Now, David's nervous, okay, because Judah, you can't do Israel's, you can't lead Israel without Judah. David sees that and he thinks about it often and he's concerned about this situation. That's where we're going to pick back up. All right, so keep reading with me. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his home? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. All right. We need to pay a little bit closer attention to David's words and think about them here, because this is the hinge upon which the entire passage pivots. All right. So listen to his words. He says, You're my relatives, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good argument. David looks at his family and his relatives and his tribe and says, why would you not embrace me as king? Israel has already done it. All right? And there's nothing wrong with that. And he says, my relatives shouldn't be the last to embrace my throne. And that's true. But here's where it pivots. He says, tell Amasa, you'll lead my armies. Now that is a huge problem. Why? Does anybody remember what Amasa did? Amasa led Absalom's forces, right? Amasa was the leader of the rebellious armies that had just hunted down the true king of Israel. Now he's saying, Amasa, you'll be in charge instead of Joab, even though Joab led the king's armies against Amasa, and even though Joab single-handedly crushed the civil war by killing the tyrant king Absalom, and even though Joab kept the king from foolishness. When David was mourning over his son instead of rejoicing over his victory, Joab said, hey man, you need to think twice about this because your people are going to rebel against you if you continue this disposition, right? Joab has been faithful to David. So why would David say, no, 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 Amasa, you're going to lead my armies. Why? Because it was good politics. Because it was expedient. It wasn't right to humiliate Joab, and it wasn't right to honor Amasa, but Judah was now on board, so the end justifies the means, right? Now, I want to think carefully about David's response, because this is, I think, the beginning of a pattern that's going to unfold three or four more times in this passage, all right? David feels the injustice of Judah's hesitation, right? He feels the injustice of it. And he, he rightly fears 
further injustice. You know, he's concerned about what if Joe never comes on board? That's a big deal. But then he sets wisdom aside and he reacts in a way that he thinks would make that future injustice impossible. Right? Bribing Judah with the leadership of the army was the politically expedient decision. All right, now let's keep reading. Uh, we are going to skip to um, chapter 19, uh, verse 41. Okay? Verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So what we see here is the consequence of David's actions, right? It's very quickly unfolding that David's expediency is compounding the division among Israel and Judah, right? Israel feels this injustice immediately. And both Israel and Judah fear further injustice at the same time. So there's this building anxiety, right? And, And they're now placed in precisely the same position that David was in. You see that David's political expediency didn't actually resolve anything. It just compounded things. It's going from bad to worse. All right, keep reading. Chapter 20. This is officially our passage. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for him. But he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as in widowhood. But then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together with, to me within three days, And be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. So at this moment, right, where both Israel and Judah is is seeing injustice unfold and they're, 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 they're fearing further injustice, they could have just sat down at the table And they could have operated in wisdom and they could have worked through that injustice and attempted to reconcile with their brothers. They could have celebrated God's gift of a king together. But that wasn't expedient. See, Israel and Sheba followed David's logic here. Sheba senses the injustice of David's action 
And he fears further injustice. Is Israel always going to be in this second place role? Are we always going to be ignored? Are we always going to be disrespected? And, and at that juncture, he sets wisdom aside and he reacts in a way that he felt would make further injustice impossible. You see, rebellion was the expedient decision. So already we see this expediency creating this spiral of destruction and division. It's getting worse and worse. And all of a sudden we're facing murder and war and bloodshed among God's people. All right, keep reading. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and a sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground with, without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the men saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway onto the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So we have the same pattern play out. Joab, who has been for years now faithful to the king, sees rightly the, ju- the injustice on display in David's decision. Right? And, he, and he fears that this justice is going to compound. Right? Like, am, am I, will I always be dishonored? Will I always be second place? These are good questions. And this is a real concern. But setting wisdom aside, Joab reacted in a way that he felt would make that future injustice impossible. So you see this expediency at play, stage after stage. And you see that this is going from like anger and frustration and rage to division and to cries of war and to murder and bloodshed. Expediency is the enemy at play here. And every Every uh, main figure in this passage seems to have that right in their back pocket, right? Okay, keep reading. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, to Beth Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city. And it stood against the rampart 
And they were battering the wall to throw it down. So what began as a seemingly insignificant act of political expediency has dissolved step by step into a series of foolish and expedient wrongs. What's interesting about this is that both sides, Israel and Judah, sense some injustice at play. And both sides rightly fear that that injustice is going to compound and create more and more problems for them. But both sides, David and Israel and Judah and Sheba and Joab, the armies of both Sheba and the armies of of Joab, they're all setting wisdom aside. Both sides have reacted in a way that they felt would fix the problem. And it led step by step to civil war. You can't ignore the progression here. This should have been a moment of peace. Instead, you've got an entire army looming. I don't know if you know much about sieges, but they're terrible. And the only end of a siege is the murder of the city or the starvation of the city. So Israel is in trouble here and it's all because all the players are acting expediently. All right, now keep reading. Then a wise woman called from the city. Listen. Listen, tell Joab come here that I may speak to you. And he came near. And the woman said, "Are you a, are you Joab?" He answered, I am. Then she said, listen to the words of your servants. And he answered, I'm listening. She said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba the son of Bichri has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to the people in all her wisdom. And they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now I want you to focus your attention on this wise woman. You'll notice that this is the first time that wisdom is at play in this story. David behaved foolishly. Israel responds foolishly. Judah reacts foolishly. Sheba acts foolishly. Joab acts foolishly. At every step of this unfolding nightmare, the key players are being fools. And here's this unnamed woman with this one key feature. And think about her words for a minute. She's saying, this city is treasured. This is a gift. She's saying, this city is a part of the Lord's inheritance. She's saying, this city is a fountain of wisdom. She's saying, why would you destroy something so beautiful? So beautiful a gift from God. And if you follow her her logic, you're going to see that she's reflecting constantly on God and God's gift and God's work. That's what wisdom does. 
Wisdom reflects on God's law. Wisdom reflects on God's character. Wisdom reflects on God's gifts and and seeks justice and restrains wrath. In other words, this woman single-handedly represents the polar opposite course of action that was than that which was taken by David or by Israel or by Judah or by Sheba or by Joab. See, in fear, David forgot God's law and he forgot God's character. And in fear, Israel and Judah forgot God's gifts. And in fear, Sheba forgot justice. And in fear, Joab failed to restrain his wrath. In just a moment, with this picture of this wise woman interceding, we get a picture that godly wisdom is the antidote to expediency. When godly wisdom is at play, expediency is unnecessary. So, what does this story mean for you? This this bizarre, relatively bizarre story about a series of really bad decisions and a resolution from one wise woman. What does this mean for your day-to-day life? I can think of a few ways that we can apply this passage. First, righteous ends never justify wicked means. Let me repeat that. Righteous ends never justify wicked means. Christians are not pragmatists. When deciding how to behave, we don't think primarily or exclusively about the result. Why? Because means matter. How you get there really matters. Very few figures in this story had an end in mind that wasn't relatively good. But how they got there really caused problems. Let me give you an example from Christ's life that illustrates this. If you get a chance this week, read through the temptations of Christ. Right? What's interesting about Satan's attempt to, to uh, shatter Christ's ministry is that he's appealing always to good ends. Right? Turn that bread to stone. Sustain your life, King, Christ, Messiah. Your life ought to be sustained, right? He says, look, the Bible says that this will happen. Fulfill the Scriptures, Christ, right, Messiah. He says, look, everyone will honor you. Demonstrate your power, right? That's part of what you're here for, Christ, is to demonstrate your miraculous power. What if, what if all the nations bowed down before you? What better end is there than all of the nations bowing before Christ, right? But step by step, Christ rebukes Satan and casts him away because means matter. Now, that's a broad application. I I bet you're thinking of ways that that applies to your life. But I want to get a little bit more specific. We need to beware 
of political expediency. Here's what I mean. If you vote according to a single legislative agenda or according to a single uh, uh, political agenda and you don't have the slightest consideration of character or, or virtue or the candidate's broader platform, you, you may not be voting Christianly. Now, this is a complicated scenario, right? There's no righteous politician. And I don't have the answer. In fact, I don't, probably if we've spoken about politics, you've walked me through your thought process to why you voted in this direction or that direction. And my main criteria for evaluating whether or not you're following Christ in your decisions is whether or not you're thinking about those variables. But you're not allowed to not. You get very close to expediency when you're just pulling the trigger thoughtlessly because, well, I've got this end in mind. Does it make sense? Acting Christianly in a democracy is complicated business. And it requires reflection and wisdom and nothing short of your full attention. Think carefully. Plead for wisdom. Bring the scriptures to your decision making. Amen? Now I'm going to get a little closer to home. Beware of social expediency. It is commonplace in almost every industry to network. You know what I mean? If you're in sales or if you're just in management or if you're if you're if you're on the ground floor or if you're at the top floor, networking is endorsed as good, solid behavior. That's how you grow your circle of influence, right? Let me tell you, we are not allowed as Christians to engage with someone because they can or might provide a benefit to us without caring about the person themselves. Understand? I find myself doing this. I'm confessing this to you. This is not a, hey guys, I noticed this a behavior in your life. This is a, hey guys, I noticed this behavior in my life. Start paying attention to the conversations you start. And if you see those conversations headed in a particular direction that might be personally advantageous, but not a direction that might be personally awkward or weird. You're probably off. Make sense? This happens, this expediency unfolds, I think, on a regular basis on social media. Uh, I'm not talking about networking now. I'm talking about something else. And there's, there's a lot of enemies of the gospel in our society and on social media and saying things on a regular basis. And often we feel compelled to engage them or to engage their ideas. And often the bad way to do so follows this sort of 
structure, right? Person X is an enemy of the gospel, right? Everybody's in agreement. Person X is promoting ideas that undermine the gospel, or they're promoting legislation that undermines the gospel, or they're promoting um, political parties that undermine the gospel, whatever. You say person X is an enemy of the gospel, but you also recognize that simply critiquing their ideas, merely identifying the flaws in their logic, or simply calling my neighbors to think carefully doesn't engage very well. But if I mock person X and maybe sneak in some of my critique, more people will see it, more people will engage it, And then the ideas themselves will go farther. Great plan, right? Maybe maybe just this one moral compromise will lead to the enlightenment of a whole nation of social engagement. It's not true. It's not true. And it's not Christian. Broadly, I guess what I'm saying is that you should respond to fear with meditation on God and not necessarily the course of action you think will interrupt that series of events. I think this is all over the scriptures. I'm just going to read you two examples. We just read one, actually. Wise woman saying, think about God's gifts. Think about the Lord's inheritance. Think about all the goodness that you're about to stifle because of your actions, right? But let me read you a couple more. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Think about God. Think about God's character, God's law, God's gifts, God's kingdom. Where Christ is, seating at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are earth. For if you have died, your life is hidden with Christ. In God. Are you in a precarious situation? Maybe you feel what David felt, or what Israel felt, or what Sheba felt, or what Joab felt. Maybe you feel injustice and you sense it rightly. And maybe you fear that this thing's going to compound. How do you ensure that you will walk in a course that is Christianly? How do you ensure that you will walk? with wisdom and righteousness like the wise woman and not with foolishness like all the rest of the people. Think on the things that are above. Dwell on the work of God. Dwell on the gospel. Dwell on the kingdom. That's truly where you are. If you're in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's where your mind should be dwelling. And to the degree that your mind is dwelling on the things of God, you are less likely to behave expediently. Let me give you another text that I think is helpful. It's from first, 2, Peter 5, 2 Peter 1. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Why? Because if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you envision a life 
free of expediency? Do you envision a life where your means are never compromised? Do you envision a life where you're chasing after the kingdom and never once do you stumble into bad means to get there? This is one of the ways to ensure you will reach that vision. We have this brilliant focus on our helplessness because of the grace of God, right? We often reflect on God's sovereign choice to redeem us and to take us step by step, grace upon grace, into this maturity and prepare us for the coming kingdom. And and we rightly dwell on God's might and God's work in that process. And I fear that sometimes we don't think about passages like this that say, make every effort, right? Make every effort. That's you. The Lord is using you. It's Him, really. It's the Spirit at work in you. But there's no sanctification that doesn't require you're making effort to supplement your faith, right? Beware of expediency. The way you avoid it is this way. Amen? And just in general, pray for wisdom. One of my favorite promises in the scriptures in James. If any of you lacks wisdom, that's me. That's me. Man, I can't tell you how many times we as elders sit down and we like reflect on an issue. (laughs) And then like one or two or all of us at the same time will say, oh, we need wisdom. We just need wisdom. There's not literally there's nothing wrong with admitting you need wisdom because In every single situation ever you are in, you need wisdom, right? So this is you. This is a promise to you in your situation right now. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? Go to the library. That's what it says. Just kidding. Just making sure you're you're paying attention. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. Listen, without reproach. Do you know what those two words mean? Without reproach? That means it doesn't matter that you were a doofus yesterday. (laughs) Ask God for wisdom and He gives it. When you in Christ ask Him for anything, He responds to you in Christ. Right? So when you plead for wisdom, He's not thinking, wow, you really made a wreck of your life. No, He's thinking, Here you go, my righteous son, my righteous daughter. You want wisdom? I've got plenty. Amen? Also, and I don't really need to explain this, praise God for wise women. We don't have to ask the question, what would have happened to Israel if this wise woman hadn't intervened? Because that unfolds over the next 200 pages, right? Eventually, wisdom doesn't interfere with the foolishness and the lawlessness of Israel. But man, how many lives were saved because of that wise woman, right? I mean it here. I don't mean it in general. We... I probably shouldn't name names because that would be, um, I don't know, weird uh, or something. But, oh, man, every week, every month, I am the beneficiary of the wisdom of my older sisters in Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. 
Finally, follow the king who never, ever compromised the means to establish his kingdom. The kingdom that we hope in was established by the sweat and blood and tears of Christ. How many opportunities? Read the Gospels. You can't list them efficiently. How many opportunities did did Christ have to accomplish kingdom ends expediently? He literally had crowds of people wanting to anoint Him King. Right? He literally was having His best friends say, by no means, Lord, and rebuking Him for talking about going and dying on the cross. Something we knew. He prayed, if there's any way for it to not be. Right? Christ was constantly being offered opportunities toward expediency. And He said, no. And it's because of that good work. The good work of Christ refusing to compromise to establish His kingdom that we are in His kingdom. That we can hope in His kingdom. I've told you this several times. Second Samuel is about answering the question, why is not David the true king? Why isn't David the true king? What, what's wrong with David? David had a, we had all these hopes building up in David. Look at him. He's, he's, he's slaying giants. He's, he's singing God's praises. He's prophesying. He's... Second Samuel is written to teach you the distinction between David, the shadow, and Jesus, the true king of Israel. And this is, where one of the, this, this is one of the areas where that distinction is most clear. He took on our weakness so he can understand and relate to us in temptation, right? But he never compromised, yet without sin. Amen? If you take this passage and this sermon seriously, you're going to engage your mind and your body and your thoughts in how to refuse to compromise the means. And I promise you will fail often. And when you do, look to Christ who never failed, who kept the means, who, who accomplished His ends without compromising the means. And that end is your redemption. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, guys. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.